Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I'll get there eventually. Um, You know, this is going to sound um, like an amazing statement, and but I'm telling you, it's the absolute truth. What separates Christianity from every other quote religion? Regardless of whether it's in India or Africa or whatever, every one of them is based on works. You do the right thing and God will accept you and you'll be okay. I mean, I'm telling you, every other religion in the world. And there's some who named the name of Christ, but it's still works-based. Now, the message I'm going to preach to you today is, I believe, the greatest message God has ever given me. And I've preached thousands of messages. But because there's a point in this message, if you see it, it'll absolutely revolutionize your understanding of the cross and of Christianity. And I'm just praying that you'll see it. I believe you will, but I'm asking God. It's how we can live in the presence of God with confidence. Let me pray. Father, now in Jesus' name, let us see, hear, and understand. Open our eyes. Give us revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that we were created to live in the presence of God. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a perfect place. And they had a perfect heart, and they had perfect fellowship with Him, and they were created to live in the presence of God. You know, Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will show me the path of life in your presence. Now, get this you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Created to live in the presence of God. And I'm telling you, it was heaven on earth. As Adam and Eve fellowshiped with God, walked with God, talked with God, in that perfect place called Eden. It was heaven on earth. But then the tragedy occurred. Satan, who is a liar came to Eve and said, Eve, can you eat of all the trees of the garden? She said, yes, we can. We can eat of all of them but one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God told us that the day we ate it, if we ate that tree in disobedience, that we would die. Satan said, you won't die. You won't die. You know, God just doesn't want what's best for you. So you know the story in Genesis 3 that Eve ate the fruit. It was a thing pleasant to behold, pleasant to the eyes, of things to be desired. So she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she gave it to Adam. And Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And immediately, they realized they were naked. And they became afraid. And so you know what they did? Listen to this. This, this is the saddest picture in all the Word of God. I mean, they were created to live in God's presence. But in the third chapter of Genesis, it says, in verse 7, The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard, now, this was a normal occasion. It happened every day. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Everything had changed. Instead of looking forward to living in God's presence, instead of enjoying Him where there were pleasures at His right hand forevermore, now they're hiding themselves from the presence of God. Can you imagine Adam and Eve crouched down behind the trees? They didn't want to face God. 
tragedy. They were created to live in his presence. They didn't want to encounter God. And so God knows what's going on. And, but, but he says uh, in verse 9, Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Adam, where are you? Now listen. Anytime God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. God knew where Adam was. But he wanted Adam to know where he was. And you know, that's exactly what God does to you and I. You know, we have our trees that we hide behind from the presence of God. Now, why was Adam hiding? Because he was in Eve. They were guilty. They'd sinned. They were ashamed. They had sinned. And, and sin was in their life. And so now, instead of looking forward to the presence of God and enjoying the presence of God, now they're, they're, they're hiding behind their trees. You know, have you ever noticed when there's something in our life that's not right with God, that we kind of hide behind our trees? But you know what God does? He doesn't leave us alone. Aren't you glad he doesn't leave us alone? He comes to me and says, Fred, where are you? Or, or he speaks to you. Well, where are you? And Adam answered him and said, you know, the Lord God called to Adam, where are you? And he said, well, I heard your voice in the garden. Look what sin does to you. And I was afraid because I was naked. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And listen to what the, how it goes. The man said, the woman. Oh, he blamed it on his wife. <laughs> the woman you gave to me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the devil deceived me, and I ate. Everything changed that day. Instead of living in the presence of God and enjoying him forever. Adam and Eve were now separated from God. And you know what happened? In Genesis chapter 3, God drove them out of the garden. They left, they left that perfect place. They left that perfect fellowship. They left that perfect communion. And, and, and as you read over in verse 23 of Genesis 3, Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which it was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed Jerob, cherubim over the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. What a tragedy. Created to live in God's presence. But because of sin, driven out of the garden, and no longer living, in the presence of God. But you see, we were created to live in His presence. We were created to have fellowship with Him. We were created to enjoy Him forever. But now, everything had changed. Now, I'm going to make a statement that you, you, you're going to find hard to believe, but I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture. And, and, and God will show you that after Adam and Eve sinned, everyone born from Adam to Jesus, every person born from Adam to Jesus was no one since Adam to Jesus has ever lived anymore in the presence of God. You see, Adam's sin was passed down to you and me, and everyone since Adam, from Adam to Jesus, nobody, nobody has lived in the presence of God. In other words, the purpose for which they were created was now absolutely uh, violated and gone. You say, but Brother Fred, you're telling me from Adam to Jesus, that, that was a long time. That was hundreds of thousands of, or thousands of years. You're telling me that no one lived in the presence of God? No. Now, they had brief encounters with the presence of God. Moses on the mountain had a brief encounter with the presence of God. And it was so great when he came down, they had the veil over his face. I believe that David had brief encounters with the presence of God. But see, no, I'm not talking about brief encounters with the presence of God. I'm talking about living, living in the presence of God. And from Adam to Jesus, 
no one, no one could live in the presence of God. You know, I'm going to prove that to you. Did you know that 40 chapters in the Bible are devoted to the tabernacle? More chapters to the tabernacle than to the crucifixion. Why did God go to such great detail in describing and telling Moses how to build the tabernacle? Why did he devote 40 chapters of this inspired book to, to, uh, about a building, the tabernacle? Because I'm going to tell you something. The tabernacle, every piece of it, is a picture of Jesus. And it is in the tabernacle that we find the truth that nobody could live in the presence of God. Well, hey, walk with me through the tabernacle. Every pe- part of it is a, is a picture of Jesus. You know, there was the outer court. And the people came there every day bringing their sacrifices. Oh, they knew they were sinners. They knew they were sinners. And they knew their sin had separated from God. And so they would come with a goat or a lamb or a dove. And they would come to the outer court. And in the outer court, there were two pieces of furniture. There was a bronze altar, a brazen altar. Bronze is always the picture of judgment. And they would bring their sacrifices and give them to the priest. And the priest would offer them on that bronze uh, brazen altar for the sins of the people. And day by day, day by day, they'd come, offer their sacrifices on that brazen altar, just covering their sin. They could never be forgiven. And then there was another piece of furniture in the outer court. It was called the bronze laver. And here were the priests. They were constantly offering up these sacrifices and the shedding of blood. And so the priest would go to the bronze laver and they would wash their hands and cleanse themselves because there was the second room in the tabernacle. That was the outer court with the bronze brazen altar and the bronze laver. Picture of God's judgment, really. But then there was a small curtain and they went into the holy place. Now, it was interesting to know that the only light, God told Moses, build the holy place so that the only, there'll be no outside light to come in. The only light in the holy place will be the seven golden lampstands, picture of Jesus, and the seven golden lampstands fed with the uh, olive oil, uh, oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit. So every day now, the priest would be in the outer court and minister to the people. But then every day, they'd just go right inside that curtain, and they'd go to the holy place. And in the holy place, on one side was the seven golden lampstands. Picture of Jesus, the light of the world. The only light in there was from those lampstands. And they were fed by oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so they'd go in, and they would tend the seven golden lampstands. But then on the other side, there was a table of showbread, and they would minister there at that table. And that was a picture of Jesus, the bread of life. In the holy place, Jesus, the light of the world. And in the holy place, Jesus, the bread of life. And at the very back of the holy place, there was an altar of incense. And and it it never went out. They would keep it going all the time. And the, the, uh, the, uh, the smell of the incense would go up in the air. And it would be, uh, 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 it was a picture of the sinless life of Jesus. The aroma of his sinless life. And the aroma of his prayers as the intercessor. And, and every day, the priest would go in there and be sure the golden lampstands were working and the table of showbread and come to that altar. But you know, then there was some remarkable thing in the back of that holy place. It's the key to the whole thing. You know what it was? At the back of the holy place, There was a seven-inch thick, ten-foot-high scarlet veil. We would call it a curtain. Now, can you imagine how massive it was? It was seven inches thick, and it was ten feet high. And behind the veil was the third room of the tabernacle, and it was called the Holy of Holies. Oh, the Holy of Holies. Of holies. Inside the veil in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. In there were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, 
and a golden pot of manna that God had fed them with. And so there was the Ark of Covenant. Now let me tell you about the Ark of the Covenant. It was made of wood, which was a picture of the humanity of Jesus, but it was covered with gold, which was a picture of the deity of Jesus. But above the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, inside the veil was the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And God would look at the broken law, and he would look at that through the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat were the cherubim, the angelic beings, the cherubim. Now, you ask any Israelite, you ask any part of the people of Israel, where does God dwell? They would say, oh, he doesn't dwell in the outer court. That's not where God dwells. God doesn't dwell in the holy place. That's not where he dwells. They would say, oh, it's inside the veil. Inside the veil. Above the Ark of the Covenant and above the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God is. The Shekinah glory. The presence of God. Dwelling there in the Holy of Holies. Above the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. But you know the problem? The priest went into the outer court every day. The priest went into to the holy place every day. But you know what? Nobody could go inside the veil. Nobody. Oh, no. But you say, wait a minute, Brother Fred. That's where God's presence was. That's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled. And you're telling me that that was off limits? It's like that seven-inch thick, ten-foot-high scarlet veil said, Keep out. Keep out. You can't go into the presence of God. You say, Pastor, we were created to live in God's presence. But you're telling me that nobody could live and go into the Holy of Holies. One day a year. That's right, one day a year. On the Day of Atonement, the highest and holy day for the Israelite people, and still for the Jewish people today, the Day of Atonement is an awesome, awesome time. But on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the father and the mother and the children would stand in the doorway of their homes, and at a certain time, the priest, the great high priest, would, 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 would clothe himself with all the robes and with all the symbols, wash himself, because this was the high and holy day, the only day anyone could go in the presence of God, and he would hang an, a, a, an altar of incense, a, a bowl of incense over his arm so that the smoke would cover him from the presence of God. And then he would go, they would push open the veil, and the priest, the great high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, and on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle the mercy seat seven times, seven times with the blood of goats and calves. And as soon as he had finished, he would turn around and exit the Holy of Holies, and nobody would go in for another year. And as long as that veil was in place, as long as that veil stood, here was the message. Nobody can live in the presence of God. From Adam to Jesus, no one could live in the presence of God. You said, now, Brother Fred, is, is that in the Scripture? I want you to listen. Now, we're going to get to Matthew 27 in a minute or two. But I want you to listen now to Hebrews what I just told you is exactly right here in the ninth chapter, and, and you can go back and read it, but I want you to listen to what it said. And listen in 9 verse 6 of Hebrews. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went, stay with me now, into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services of God. Now it says here, the priest always went into the outer court and always went into the holy place. They always went every day performing the services of God. But listen at this. Verse 7. 
But into the second part, the Holy of Holies, inside the veil. But in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself, and the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, then it, this says it. The Holy Spirit indicating that the way into the Holy of Holies was not yet made manifest as long as the first tabernacle, the veil, still stood. Can't be any plainer than that. Every day the priest went into the outer court in the holy place. But as long as that veil was in place and as long as it stood, th th this was the words, keep out. No one can live in the presence of God. And only once a year he went in. It was so serious that they tied a rope around his ankle that in case he went in there and died, nobody could go in to get him out because nobody could live in God's presence. They could drag him out with the rope. Now, wait a minute, y'all. We were created to live in the presence of God. In his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, this, 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 this has got to end. I mean, from Adam to Jesus. And as long as that veil was in place, you couldn't get in. Okay. Now, I want to share with you from the Word of God how you get inside the veil. How you get into the presence of God. And how you live there with confidence. You see, I, I, I mean, that, that's the bottom line, isn't it? We were created to live in God's presence and to enjoy Him and, 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 and uh, uh, Him to bless and, 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 and minister to us. So, I mean, I need to know how to get inside that veil and how to get into the Holy of Holies and live in the presence of God every day of my life. How do you do that? Well, I'm going to tell you, first of all, how you don't do it. How do, how do you not get inside the veil how do you not get into to the presence of God and live there with confidence the word I want to use is the word performance performance there's a philosophy in America that is deadly and it's ungodly but it's the philosophy that most of the American culture lives by here's what it is if you perform right performance you will be accepted and if you are accepted you have value now, now, now think about it just in our culture well here's a person who's gifted in any way whether it's athletically or academically and they perform right well buddy uh, they got the door open for them for acceptance and man they have value and so that philosophy Performance equals acceptance equals value is the mindset that controls people today. Now, it's carried over into the religious realm. It's like this. Well, if you perform right, then certainly God will accept you and then you will have value. But you see, the whole thing is a lie. Look, you know the reverse of that? You know what we say to people? Well, if you don't perform right, you're not accepted. And if you're not accepted, you don't have any value. And can you imagine the people today who, whether just growing up or whatever, they're just come upon this mindset, well, I, I really don't perform like others. I don't perform right. So I, I, I get rejected and I'm, I, I'm not accepted. So I guess I'm really not worth anything. Folks, that's not true. Let me tell you something. The performance, acceptance, value is, is not of God. But it carries over even into the religious realm. But now let me just say this to you. And if you get, you'll get this, your value, you know where your value comes from? Your value didn't come from the fact that you performed right and you're accepted and you have value. Absolutely not. 
Your value comes from the fact that you are created in the image of the living God. And when God created you, He did not create a bunch of junk. You were created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, And let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. And male and female, he created them. And let me tell you something. God, not only your value, not only comes from the fact that you're created in the image of God, but your value comes from the fact that you're greatly loved by Almighty God. I'm telling you, every human being born into this world had great value to God because he created them in their image, his image. And he loves every created person with an unconditional love. And you see, God's love for us and our value to God is not based on our performance, y'all. Listen, I'm, hey, aren't you glad God, your, your value to God is not based on your performance? <laughs> In fact, if you never perform right, you're still valuable to God. If you never perform right, God still loves you with an exceedingly great love. You say, how do you know that, Brother Fred? I'm going to show you. In Romans chapter 8, I want you to listen to this. I, I mean, see, the gospel's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. And in Romans chapter 8, beginning down in uh, chapter 5, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Now, this doesn't sound like good performance. For when we were still without strength... Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, we didn't have the strength to perform right. And so therefore, the philosophy of the world, we wouldn't be accepted and we wouldn't have any value. But not so with God. For when we were still without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And it goes on down in verse 8. Now listen to this. But God commends his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you get that? You weren't performing right. And Christ died for you. Listen, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ did not see you at your best and go to the cross and die for you. Jesus Christ saw you at your absolute worst. And then went to the cross and died in your place. You were still a sinner, and Christ died for you. And man, it, looks, it says down in verse 10, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we will be saved by his life. You see, this idea of performance equals acceptance equals value is totally against the nature of God is totally against the person of God. The truth is, the value of every human being comes from the fact that they are created in God's image. And not only created in God's image, but even when we were not performing right and did not perform right and could not perform right, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. And I'm telling you, God loves people. He loves you unconditionally. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Our acceptance by God is not based on our performance. He said, all right, Brother Fred, well then, let me ask you a question. How do you get in the presence of God? How do you get inside the veil? How do you do it? Now, let me just go on, and this is really going to disturb some of you, but it, it, you, you'll, it, it, it'll clear up before I finish. But now, a per, see, you, you don't get in the, inside the veil, and you don't get in the presence of God by your performance. You don't. You just don't do it. You can call it works or whatever you want to. Somebody said, well, listen, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to get inside the veil, 
and how I'm going to be accepted by God, and I'm going to live in the presence of God. Well, I'm going to, I, I'm going to read the Bible. Well, now, you need to read the Bible, but that's not the way you get inside the veil. Well, I'm going to pray. Well, you need to pray, but that's not the way you get inside the veil and live in the presence of God. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm going to be faithful. Well, you need to be faithful, but that's not the way you get inside the veil in the presence of God. Well, I'm going to witness. Well, you need to, but that's not the way you get inside the veil and get in the presence of God. Well, I'm going to tithe. Boy, it's getting serious now. I'm going to tithe. That's not the way you get inside the veil and get in the presence of God. Listen, that's not the way. Let me tell you why I know that. If Bible reading, and I'm for it now, and I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. If Bible reading and prayer and witnessing and giving and being faithful would get you inside the veil into the presence of God, the first people in there would have been the Pharisees. They loved the Bible, read it all the time. They prayed at least how many times a day? They gave 30%. And they were extremely religious people. But you know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? I'm going to quote Jesus, Matthew 5, 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never get inside the veil. You'll never get in the presence of God. And the Pharisees never got in. And buddy, I'm not going to try to match my religious performance with theirs. So we come to the question. And this is the most exciting thing I I mean, I just can't, I've never got over it, and I'm not ever going to get over it. How do you get inside the veil? It is not by performance. It is by provision. The provision that God made in His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 27. You see, you don't get inside the veil and live in the Holy of Holies and live in the presence of God by your performance the way you get in there is through the provision of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we come to Matthew 27. In verse 33, now you stay with me. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave Him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when He would not drink it, when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, dividing his garments, casting lots that he might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. You see, you do not get inside the veil, and you do not get in the presence of God by performance. It's by provision. And it's the provision that God made for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk to you a moment about the cross. I'm talking about God's provision. Let me ask you something. Who is it on that cross? I mean, who is it? Oh, I know there was a robber on one side and a robber on another, but I'm talking about the middle cross. Who is it that's on that cross? Well... It's the son of David. Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. He's the last Adam. He's the sinless, sinless son of God. This is not just another man. This is Jesus Christ conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Lived a sinless life. Healed the sick, raised the dead. Loved like no one ever loved. Taught like no one ever taught. And here he is, nailed to a cross. Now who is it on the cross? Perfect humanity. The last Adam. The Lamb of God without spot or blemish. But let me ask you, who is it on the cross? It's not only the Son of David, perfect humanity. It is the Son of God. Perfect deity. 
Jesus Christ was 100% man, full of the Holy Spirit. But he's 100% God. He is God manifest in the flesh. And hanging on the cross is the Son of the living God. I appreciate that, Lord. That's when God says amen. Hey, listen, this is the God-man. He laid aside his deity, but took upon himself the, a form of a man. But I'm telling you, he, he was God, but he laid it aside so he could come and die on the cross. So we got to understand who's on that cross. It's the son of David, hallelujah, perfect humanity, but the son of God dying in our place. In our place. Now, I want to ask you a question. It has everything to do with it. If I were to ask you, well, tell me about heaven. You would say, well, Brother Fred, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I said, amen. You said, oh, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Hey, and that's a good description of heaven. But let me ask you this question. If I ask you, say, well, Give me a description of hell. You say, well, ah, the rich man died. Oh, no, listen to me. Listen. Did you know that the most vivid, graphic picture of hell is Jesus on the cross? Because on the cross, Jesus not only took our sin, he took our punishment. He took our hell. And there are, five, there are four scenes from the cross that are a vivid description of hell. The first one is this. In Matthew chapter 27, I want you to look at it. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 38, it says, the two robbers were, then, then two robbers were crucified with him, the one on the right and the other on the left. All right, verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. First picture of hell. Jesus died between two criminals. You know what hell is? Hell is an eternal place where you spend eternity with vile and wicked people. Jesus died between two robbers. Vile and wicked people. He took our hell so we would not have to go to hell. And so I say, man, here the son of God, the son of David, <clears throat> died between two thieves. And he's, I said, what a picture of hell. Here's, here's Jesus dying between two vile and wicked men. And I'm going to tell you about hell. If a person rejects Christ and goes to hell, they spend eternity with vile and wicked people. Now you get to choose your companions on this earth. But my friend, you reject Christ and die without Christ. You, won't, you, you don't have any choice of your companions. And hell is a place where you spend eternity with vile and wicked people. Here's the second picture of hell. See, Jesus took our hell on the cross. He took our sin, but he took our punishment. Hell is a place of eternal darkness. Look at what it says in verse 45. I mean, what's this picture of? Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. It was midnight. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. And the sun was blotted out and it became pitch dark. And Jesus hung there in the darkness. And he took our hell. Because hell is the place of eternal darkness. You know, it's one thing for it to be dark. But it's another thing for it never to be light. Can you imagine eternity in pitch black darkness? Hell is the place where you spend eternity with vile and wicked people. Hell is a pace of eternal, unending darkness. See, but Jesus took your hell 
so you would never have to go to hell. I mean, he took your place. I mean, then it, it gets the, the, the next picture of hell that you see. That's the only way you're going to understand the cross, uh, what hell is like. It, it, it's a place where you spend eternity with vile and wicked people. It's a place where there's eternal darkness. But look at verse 46 of 27. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, yama, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what hell is? It's a God-forsaken place. You say, Brother Fred, I'll be very frank with you. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want to have anything. I want to do my live my life, do my thing. I don't have anything to do with God. But God loves you enough to confront you. But I'm going to tell you, you die without Christ, and you won't ever have to worry about God again. Because hell is a God-forsaken place. Jesus was forsaken. Because of our sin. And he took our punishment. And he was forsaken. So that we would never have to be forsaken. And then. There's this last picture of hell. Hell is a place of unquenchable thirst. Jesus. It says in John chapter 19. That Jesus cried. I thirst. I thirst. I thirst. And they. Took up. uh, Something on hyssop and which was a little bush, and touched it to his lips, and Jesus didn't receive it. Can you imagine? I know what it is to be thirsty, but what you're never able to get a drink of water. You see, folks, let me tell you something. You want, you want to know about this one on the cross? Son of God, Son of David, perfect humanity, perfect deity, dying in our place, dying in our place, taking our sins in his body on that tree. And there he is suffering hell for you and me that we would never have to go to hell. But then something awesome happens. Look over in verse 50. And Jesus Christ. Then Jesus cried out, he's hanging on the cross, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, what did he cry out? Well, John chapter 19 verse 30 says, John 19 verse 30, Jesus cries out, tetelestai, tetelestai, or tetelestai. It's one Greek word translated Uh, with three words. So now he's experienced our sin in his body on the tree. He suffered hell so we'd never have to go to hell. And he cried out with a loud voice, It is what? It is finished. Now he did not say that he was finished because he was only getting started. He said it is finished. What was finished? Are you listening? The Lamb of God has just made the perfect sacrifice for sin forever. Jesus has just bore the sins of the world in his body on that tree. And now the perfect sacrifice for sin has been made. All sin, past, present, and future, were paid, was paid in full by the Son of God. And he said, it is finished. What kept man out of the presence of God? What kept people out of the holy of holies? What kept people from getting inside the veil? It was sin. But go back to Matthew 27. And folks, this this is the thing, if you see it. It will absolutely let you understand That it's not by your performance, but by the provision. When Jesus Christ cried, it is finished. Look at verse 51. That veil, seven inches thick, ten feet high, said, keep out. You can't live in the presence of God. But now Jesus has made the perfect sacrifice for sin forever, ever. No more goats, no more calves, no more sacrifices. And so Jesus said, it is finished. And then look in verse 51. Then behold. The veil of the temple was torn in two 
from the top to the bottom. Well, glory to God. Since Adam sinned, there had been that separation from God. But Jesus came and offered the perfect sacrifice for sin forever. And when he did, and he cried, it is finished. Holy God reached down from heaven, and he grabbed that veil, and he tore it in two from the top to the bottom. And he said, welcome into my presence. Welcome into the presence of God. And not by what you have done, but by the perfect sacrifice of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. When you understand that Jesus bore your sins in his body on the cross and took your hell, and when Christ becomes your Lord and your Savior, my friend, the day Jesus Christ comes into your heart, you move inside the veil and you move into the Holy of Holies and you live there and you live there for eternity because all you do is when you die here, you go into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And when Christ redeems you and you're born again and changed, hallelujah, you go inside the veil and you live in his presence for the rest of your life. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hey, it's here. The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. And God said, you can come in. You, but, but Lord, I ain't done enough. You ain't got nothing to do with what you did. It's on the provision of the blood of Christ. That's how you get in. Quit trying to work your way in. You'll never get in. It's through the precious blood of Jesus let, let me show you this. It's, it's so clear. Turn to Hebrews and, and just look at this now. It says, I mean, it just says welcome. And the day I got saved, I moved into the Holy of Holies. I've been living in the presence of God ever since I got saved. And if you're saved, you've been living in the presence of God. Not only in his presence, but he's come to live in you by the person of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't your performance. It was by the provision of Jesus Christ. All right. Now look at verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 10. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. That's it. It's finished. One sacrifice for sin forever. How long's forever? Forever. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever. He sat down at the right hand of God. All right, look at verse 14 of Hebrews 10. By one offering, he has perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he set us apart and saved us eternally. Please look at verse 19. Underscore this in your Bible. Read it regularly. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy of holies by your performance. That is not what it says. Listen to it. Listen to it. Listen to it. Therefore, brethren, I'm reading the word of God, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated with us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Amazing. We can live in the presence of God. And it's all possible through the perfect sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And God raised him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God with power. Let me show you one other verse. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. And I want you to look at verse 12. Now, just, just get, see, folks, the, the door's open. Jesus is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And now he, he took our sin, experienced our hell, and he invites us to turn from our sin, to turn from our sin, and to turn to him and be forgiven and be cleansed and be God's children and live in God's presence. It says in, in verse 12 of Hebrews 9, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place. Once and for all, he went into the Holy of Holies in heaven. Man, he went right into the Holy of Holies in heaven. He entered the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, 
to serve the living God. Did you know since the day you got saved, you've been living in the presence of God? You've been in the Holy of Holies since the day Jesus came into your heart. You say, but Brother Fred, I've sinned since I got saved. We all have. I mean, I'd like to tell you I've never sinned since I got saved, but I'd be sinning because that'd be a lie. You say, but Brother Fred, when we sin, does God kick us out of the Holy of Holies? Does he kick us out? No. You see, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin forever, and your sins, past, present, and future, were paid in full by the Son of God. And so, no, if he kicked you out, you would be lost. No, when you get saved, you live in the Holy of Holies. You live in the presence of God from that time on for eternity, on earth and in heaven. Now, you say, well, Brother Fred, what if I sin? Well, what do you mean, what if? Let me tell you, I asked the Lord about that. I said, Lord, now you, you saved me from my sin. And you changed me on the inside. I'm a new creation in Christ. You gave me a new nature. I'm a partaker of the divine nature. But Lord, I'm still tempted. And at times, I I don't have to, but I sin. I said, Lord, now I'm living in your presence. If you could save me from my wicked lifestyle, if you could save me, then why didn't you fix me so I couldn't sin? Now, that's a legitimate question, isn't it? I mean, come on. Lord, why, why have I got to fight temptation till the day I go? Why didn't you fix me so that I couldn't sin? He said, oh, when you moved into my presence and you live there and I live in you, he said, oh, I took care of that. I didn't fix you so you couldn't sin, but I fixed you so you couldn't sin and enjoy it. Did you hear what I said? You know who the most miserable person is in the world? A Christian with sin in their life. In the presence of a holy God, and you've got sin in your life, rebellion. Man, God didn't fix you so you couldn't sin, but I guarantee you he fixed you so you couldn't sin and enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, you need to get into the presence of God. You know, every religion I know says, if you perform right... God will accept you, and you have value. Totally wrong. Jesus died, and through his perfect sacrifice, God rent the veil of the temple from top to bottom. And we get into the presence of God, and we live in the presence of God, and we have fellowship with God, and we enjoy him forever. And it's through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, To enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. It is not by performance. It is by God's provision that you and I can enjoy the living God for eternity.